0: I'm going to, we're actually going to be looking in Colossians 3 as we continue our, our series. We're going to look from verse 18 through to uh, chapter 4, verse 1, but I'm going to start reading uh, at verse 11. Here, that is in the church or among the people of God, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. The Word of God. Um, This is why we preach through books of the Bible, because the reality is nobody's going to pick this passage to preach on just for fun. Um, I have a friend who preached on this passage not that long ago, and uh, he spent the next week dealing with irate complaints. So, So, I really do pray that is not our circumstance this week. That would be Uh, Great. Let's be honest, this is a difficult passage. We all come to it with our biases, with our expectations of what this is going to say, and some of us, frankly, with a bit of anger and annoyance that this is even in the Bible. We need to just be honest about that. But we also need to recognize that this is Scripture, that this is in the Word of God, and we need to deal with it as such and allow it to teach us to challenge us, and to help us grow more into the likely likeness of Jesus. So, how are we going to do that this morning? Well, we're going to spend a chunk of time talking about contexts. That's context, plural, contexts. Then we're going to have a look at the three groups, the three pairs that are mentioned here. So, husbands and wives, children and fathers, and then uh, masters and slaves. And then we're going to have a conclusion at the end, hopefully, that helps us see, well, what does this have to do with us here today? Is that okay? Are we happy with that plan? Context. I want us to think about three particular contexts as we're thinking about this passage today. First of all, the context of the book of Colossians itself. We've been going through Colossians now for a couple of months, and we've been looking each week to see what is it that God is teaching us in here. Uh, But we've recognized that there's this overarching theme, this overarching narrative that says the same thing all the time. Jesus reigns. Therefore, nothing is the same. And so everything's getting turned upside down. And as we saw a few weeks ago and earlier in Colossians chapter 3, this is really the description of a whole new humanity that's been put into place. That the church is to behave in ways that are so fundamentally different to what's going on around about. So we just read about it. We're reading about forgiveness. We're thinking about the fact that we have to prefer others over ourselves, that because of what Jesus has done for us, we are to live in a completely different way, that we are to be marked with compassion and kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, these things, as opposed to what the world would be. There's a new humanity being called out because Jesus rose from the dead. That's, that's what the message of Colossians has been telling us. And Paul nails it in Colossians 3.11. And he says, here, that is in the people of God, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Paul puts down this marker in the book of Colossians and says, look, nothing's the same anymore. You are a completely different species of people. You are a new humanity. You are not to be divided in the same way that the world divides people up. We'll say some more about this in just a moment, but Paul writes this in other places in the New Testament too. And his context for that is not just, well, because you're all really nice people, you're going to be able to decide not to live in this way with all these divisions. Actually, the conclusion of it is because Christ is all and is in all. As one commentator has put it, oneness in Christ revolutionizes all relationships towards a mutual participation in Christ-likeness. Okay, that was a lot of big words. I apologize for that. But what he said, oneness, because we are one in Christ Jesus, all of our relationships are completely turned upside down and look completely different than they would do otherwise. And what do they look like? They look like Christ-likeness. So when we want to see how we're supposed to relate to one another, we look to how Christ related to others. We want to be patterned after the nature of Jesus. This is the beginning of the context of Colossians for us. See, the idea that Paul is painting a picture throughout the book of Colossians That he's painting a picture where the world is turned upside down because of who Jesus is. And then he would come along to these household relationships that we've talked about, wives and husbands, fathers and children, masters and slaves, and he would say, ah, but that, don't worry about it, it's fine, just carry on doing as you've been doing with that. It's nonsensical, right? That, That doesn't make any sense at all to what else has been going on in Colossians. And so there's clearly something going on here, some way in which Paul is saying don't be divided when you gather together, don't be divided when you are the people of God, be, be something quite different because you are in Christ Jesus. And remember Christ Jesus has turned everything upside down because he is the supreme one and therefore he must be doing something in this passage here about the household code. Does that make sense? So the question is, what is it? We'll get to that. The next context is the wider context of the Bible. Okay? This isn't the first time that the Bible talks about how we're supposed to live as families, how we're supposed to live as households. In fact, I want to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Do you remember this? So when we did our Bible series uh, way back... When it feels like ages ago, we said that, that actually there's a story being told throughout the whole of the Bible. So, does anybody remember where we began? We had five things creation, then we had fall then we have redemption in two parts, Israel and Jesus, and then we have new creation, right? That was our our story. So it's worth us going back, right? Because because when we see this, we should be asking, well, has it always been this way? So we go back, and if we go back into creation, it seems like Adam and Eve were created to be side by side, together in everything. And then one of the curses that comes as a result of the fall in Genesis chapter 3 is that there's going to be hierarchy between men and women and that that was going to cause some friction. One of the things that happens in Genesis chapter 3. Hierarchy is a consequence and I would want to suggest if we skipped all the way forward to new creation and revelation that we wouldn't see that there and I don't think we do but we don't quite have time to do that today so you just have to take my word for it or that can be one of the angry emails this week. Um, so Genesis 3 sets this this scene that actually this hierarchy that we see, and I think that we presume often of this text, began there. We also have, and if you want to write these down, I'll go quickly and then I'll go over them again if you want. So Ephesians chapter 5 verses 21 to chapter 6 verse 9 has a similar household code, but just a bit longer than we see here. 1 Timothy 2 and 1 Timothy 6 both also talk about what it means to be a Christian living among other Christians with, with uh, responsibilities for different family roles. Titus chapter 2 again talks about how we live together well. And 1 Peter 2, 18 to 3, 17 is again another household code. How do you live together as a house? Bottom line, the Bible has loads to say about this loads to say about this. That's the other context, is the Bible is interested in this everyday mundane stuff. And then the third part of our context, and the important one I think particularly for this morning as we begin to try and tease out then what is Paul doing, is an understanding of the world into which this book was written, okay? Now, here's the thing. Households all work differently, it's one of the interesting things about going to visit people, or I don't know if you've ever gone on holiday with other people, or, or you maybe lived with another family for a while, and you go in, and suddenly it's like, whoa, 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 wow, okay, that's quite different. And often good, sometimes challenging, but nearly always different, right? There's always something different going on. Um, and so too it was back in the first century. They didn't live the same way we do today. So if we turn up to this thinking when he talks about wives and husbands and fathers and children, then that we are thinking kind of nuclear family, two parents and 2.4 kids. I I, that, that was the number when I was growing up. I suspect it's a different number now. Or, or, even, or even, you know, some of the, the, the blended families and all sorts of things that we see in our culture. That's not what's going on here really important that we, don't, that we don't do that. This a household in a Greco-Roman culture was much larger, much, much larger. Not least they would typically have much more children, many more children, but they would also definitely include the slaves that were attached to that household and also the employees. They would have had some employees, often a household manager, that kind of thing. And so we get this much bigger picture of what the household was. It was an economic unit. It was the baseline of how Rome kept Rome, the Roman Empire functioning, was these households. And they were so important that they actually wrote down household codes. And they looked remarkably like what Paul has written to the Colossians. They, wrote, they would write down things that would reinforce the culture of the day and that culture was a culture of honor and of shame so stick with me for a moment i realize this is all reasonably dull but we'll get to the good stuff hopefully in a minute right So this honor-shame culture that existed then, today we have, I would say, a rights-based culture, okay? So how do we live in the world? We assert our rights. We have certain rights that are ours. We can talk about the Union Convention on Human Rights. I'll never forget the day that Zoe came home and said, oh, we've been learning all about the the declaration of the rights of a child, I think it's called. And and now she had all these ideas of uh, just what was going to happen in our house. But we live in the world. If you watch the news, you you, you can see it all through things. People are asserting their right to assert themselves in a particular way. That that when they they go to court, it's about getting their rights. That's the basis of our culture. That wasn't the basis of the culture then. If we went back 50 years ago, I think we would find in our culture much, much less of a rights culture and maybe more of one of duty that actually I exist in this world out of a sense of duty. So people went off to war because of duty, not because of rights, they went because of duty. And so too it was different back then. They had this honor culture. Everything they did was about bringing honor to whoever the head of the household was. It was always about getting honor. So if I was friends with, say, Lewis... I would make up my mind about whether I was going to be friends with Lewis based on whether he would bring me honor. Will people think more of me because I am friends with Lewis, in which case I will be his friend? If, however, they will think less of me, much more likely, then uh, then I would not be friends with Lewis because that would bring shame upon me. That's how that culture operated and it operated at every level not just friendship, how many slaves did you have, how beautiful was your wife what kind of clothes did you own, how big was your household, all these kind of things having children, big one if you didn't have children it was a massive issue of shame but children brought honour to you. That's the culture that existed and so every interaction worked towards that end and so authority always worked upwards, it was hugely hierarchical Do you understand how that would be so hierarchical if it is this honor culture, that everything's about kind of passing it up so that the guy at the top, and it was a guy, got all the honor and he would be seen to be grand and would walk around with his toga or whatever they wore and look very grand among the people. That was the culture they lived in. And they had these household codes that were there to elevate that and make sure that this is what happened. And it was, as I said, the building block of Roman society. They used it as a way to make sure that people behaved as they wanted them to. And so that culture carried on a patriarchy. that It was enormously pro-male. It was a horrible place to be a woman for the most part, not on every occasion, but in, in most. It was a terrible place to be a slave, and it was beyond belief to be a female slave. It was a horrible, horrible institution. And it's into that that Paul writes Colossians 3. If Colossians three fifteen to 17, describes what an early Christian gathering was, then this passage here is about how the whole house is being reoriented around Jesus. Um, Rachel Held Evans was an author uh, in the United States, and she wrote this about the household codes, and I found it to be really instructive for just how disruptive what Paul's written. She says, We the people of the United States, I begin... In order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defence, promote the general welfare and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish the Constitution for the United States of America. By this point, my audience, she says, would be nodding along the words of the US Constitution familiar from when they memorised them in sixth grade. All legislative powers herein granted shall be vested in a Congress of the United States, I continue, which shall consist of the Senate of idiots and the House of fools. Now it becomes clear that this is no mere recitation of the Constitution. It's a social commentary, if something of a simplistic one. I'm putting a new spin on a familiar passage in order to make a point anyone who would leave the gathering convinced this was simply a celebration of the Constitution will have missed the point. It's an imperfect example, of course, but something quite similar happens when Christians read Paul's household codes from their Bibles, unaware that the apostles were riffing off of common sentiments from the Greco-Roman world in order to make a point. I want to suggest to you that she's 100% right that that's exactly what Paul is doing, both here in Colossians and in Ephesians and in Timothy, Titus, and what Peter does in his letter. That he's not just reinforcing some cultural standard of misogyny and male household dominance, but is instead setting out something that would have been shocking and obvious to the first hearers. In conjunction with the rest of the New Testament, he was fatally undermining the current world order of relationships and setting up entirely what it is for us to be the new humanity. In practical ways, this is obvious because he directly addresses the powerless, he directly addresses the wife, the child, and the slave. That was not common in a household code. Normally, the household codes were essentially there as a manual for the man to use for how to run his house. It referred to him and him alone. But also, most importantly, Paul's household code is not about who rules or has authority, but rather who serves and who has love, and who loves, sorry. It becomes, therefore, the Christian not about how I can gain honor or power for my own sake, but how do I use that which I have for the benefit of others? Do you begin to see how Paul is going to use this to reorient a culture by saying that actually we're going to live differently in this space? I wonder today, just on that line there, that if they were concerned with honor and power in gathering it, but now Paul's saying, no, I want you to use that for others' benefit. If if I'm right by saying that we are a rights-based culture today, then maybe the question we should be asking is, how do I use my rights for the benefit of others? I have the right to freedom of speech. Perhaps I need to speak up for those who have no voice. We have the right to publicly gather and worship. Perhaps we should do so in order to pray for those who are less fortunate than us. How do we use our rights, I guess, to subvert the culture and to find those who have less? This would be the same kind of undercutting of the system that Paul does. Let's look specifically at our three examples. We begin with husbands and wives. It's worth making a quick side note here that this obviously doesn't refer to every kind of relationship. Uh, There are only three here. And so it doesn't refer to singleness or uh, those who are widowed or divorced or any other type of uh, thing going on there, type of marital situation. It doesn't describe, it doesn't talk about different parenting situations. But we have to be mindful that those are real in our culture. That it's really important that we don't somehow end up looking at this and saying, this is the perfect pinnacle. That actually to be married is the fulfillment of all that it is to be Christian, because that's not true. Because Jesus wasn't married. We must remember that, because there is a real problem in the church these days that we have made an idol of the family of husbands and wives and a couple of children. It's a good thing, right? It's a good thing. But we've made an idol of it to the point that we often then don't make space for those who don't have children or who have lost children or who are not married or whose marriage failed or whatever the circumstance might be. The people of God are all of the above. Okay? So, Paul doesn't address that today. Other places in the Bible do. I'm not going to say any more about it, but I just wanted us to be honest because that's the reality, and it's the reality for many in this room, that, that families, marriage are complicated, and the world we live in today has made them ever more so. And so, that's just the reality of our lives here. Are we okay with that? Good. We may say something more about that another day, but there won't be anything else today. Um. Okay, three groups. Uh, Husbands and wives. We're never going to get through all this today. I'm going to make an executive decision to do half of it and do the rest of it next week. So we'll do husbands and wives at least. So that means you have to come back next week to see the punchline. There we go. Um, Yeah, I think I'm just going to have to miss too much. Let's try. Let's see where we get to. Um, Husbands and wives. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Very similar to what's said in Ephesians chapter 5. Wives submit to your husbands. It's not a phrase that trips off the tongue and if I said it to Karen very frequently, I suspect I might be, I don't know, less happy than I am. Let's go with that. I should also say Karen is, isn't here today, not because I was preaching on this passage um, and she ran away, but she's been helping her sister move house. Uh, so they're uh, currently driving back from London. So, um, so wives submit to your husbands. What, what do you do with that? That sounds straight away, I don't know how you hear that, but it sounds straight away like there's some hierarchy here, right? That, that, that somehow the guys in charge And that's it, right? And women are to just come under that and be that. Well, Ephesians chapter 5 says almost exactly the same thing. Let's just read it for a second. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Almost exactly the same thing. Ephesians 5's context, the immediate verse before it, however and we must read it together, says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands. Now, I don't know if you see that, but the context of that, therefore, is that the submission of the wife to the husband is in the context of the wider submission of every Christian to every other Christian. It's not any different. Does that make sense? And so in Colossians, the the modifier here is... In the Lord, and so the same thing is going on. That the submission that is expected of a wife to a husband is in the context of being submitted to the Lord. And indeed, the verse immediately preceding this in Colossians says this: "And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him." So, our context is this lordship of Jesus and as all living under the lordship of Jesus. And in that context, it says, wives, submit to your husbands. To serve, prefer the other, to seek out their best. We want to look like what it means to submit, then we have the perfect example. We said earlier, we're trying to be become like Jesus, okay? Jesus submitted. who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, by being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. This is Jesus' posture towards us. submission. It's supposed to be our posture towards one another. It's really not a surprise that Paul says that a wife's posture towards her husband should be one of submission. It's the normal Christian approach to relationships with one another. Now, here's the next bit. Because I think when the Colossians heard that, they're going, yeah, okay, that, that's normal. Wives, submit to your husbands. That, that fits the, we, we've got a category for that. Then he says, husbands, you can imagine the guys sitting up now at this point. Yeah, it's us. Love your wives. Whoa! Stop. That wasn't normal. Right? We are now well beyond the bounds of what was expected of a man in the first century to speak of his wife in this way. Love wasn't a category. It's important to remember wives at this point, indeed for the next Seventeen, eighteen hundred 1,800 years were considered property of their husbands. Okay? So, there's no love involved. That's just a property transaction. I own you. That's the way it goes. Wives were the property, they were there. They were whole, part of this whole honor-shame thing. We, we, we kind of sometimes pejoratively use the, the language of a trophy wife these days, right? But that was common there, either because of the family she was from or what she looked like, that kind of thing. They were there to bear children. It was a tough life because the husband would not be expected to be faithful. Part of the reason to have a whole load of slaves was to have a whole load of lovers. That's the way the culture worked. It was it is filthy. It was a really horrible, horrible setup. And into that context, Paul says, husbands, love your wives. Now so any authority that is being set up here, if you want to use that category, authority is being set up as love, okay? Does that make sense? That any authority, if you want to read that into this text, the only thing you can read into it is that the authority the husband have, has is to love his wife. What does that look like? Well, I said this about a month ago, so I don't expect any of you to remember. (laughs) Love in the Bible, I said, is a covenantal commitment to three things. Presence, advocacy, and the flourishing into Christ-likeness together. Okay, that's what I said love was. Presence, advocacy, and flourishing into Christ-likeness. Those three things out of a covenantal commitment. So so by covenantal, we just mean unbreakable, okay? So we're not talking about just a contract here. This is an unbreakable covenantal commitment that we most often would refer to as God having this kind of covenantal commitment to us. He's not going to change his mind. So a covenantal commitment to his wife to be with her, in other words, to be present, to be for her, In other words, to be her advocate and to pursue Christ-likeness with her. That is what it is to love your wife. Now, there's nothing in there about authority. There's nothing in there about lording it over her. There's nothing in there about saying to her, you've got to submit to me. What there is is a self-giving for her benefit. What there is is a wanting her very best at whatever cost. Does that make sense? So so we're not talking anymore about some hierarchical, um, misogynistic setup. What we've got is a wife submitted to the husband in a way where she's preferring him, looking for his best, and a husband who is loving his wife in a way where he is present for her he is for her in every way where he is encouraging them to pursue Christ likeness together now that sounds like the kind of marriage i want to be a part of does that make sense and then there's this this little phrase in the end where he says and don't be harsh with your wives it's a bit of a strange statement the word harsh is not a great translation of the Greek, but it's not a word we have. It doesn't translate straight over. There isn't a, a better one. But it contains the idea of don't be, don't be embittered towards your wife. Don't, be, don't despise your wife. Don't be harsh towards her. It's that idea that's going on here. And most of the commentators seem to agree that the idea is That because the husbands were unfaithful, that was expected, that there's this sense that they begin to despise this woman who's always here in order to favor whatever else they can have. And so Paul's having a right good go at that because he's saying love does not despise or become embittered towards or be harsh towards because it honors and empowers at their own expense. That is what Paul wants us to do. Christian marriage, therefore, is not the striving for authority over one another. Or even the shifting of authority, as we see, I think we see this in our own culture, the shifting of authority where it once sat with a man, and now we're going to swing the pendulum all the other way, and actually we're going to give all the power to the woman, and the guys become really passive. If, if I was in a church right now filled with millennials, so guy people under 30, That would be what I'd be talking about. Too many guys have become completely passive and and left it all to women. But that's not what Christian marriage is. It's not the shifting of authority. It's not being held by one and not the other, but rather, as a commentator said, an equality based on loving and serving one another. That is what Christian marriage is, and that's what Paul wants us to talk about. I'm going to finish there because otherwise we'll be here until next week. I'm going to skip to a little bit of my conclusion because the question isn't just what did it mean for the Colossians, it's what does it mean for us? How do we live this out? And I realize this week, if you're here and you're not married, this might seem like, well, what am I going to do with that? Well, number one, come back next week because there's more for everyone. But number two is that this posture of service, of love, of humility, of honoring the other, of being present and for others is indeed for marriage, but it's for more than that. We are to live well together and to reflect that. If you are married, let me encourage you, look at your marriage. Is this, is this what it looks like? I've I found that really, I mean, sitting writing this this week, it's I know it's a mirror, and you go, "Ooh, okay, maybe maybe I could up my game a little bit." Don't tell Karen I said that. Um, I, there's much for me to learn, and much for all of us to learn here. That the reign of Jesus reaches every part of our lives. That while Colossians is concerned absolutely with all this big, huge questions of who is it that Jesus is, and how is he reigning in all of the universe, it's also deeply concerned with what are you are doing in your marriage? What are you doing when you close the door, when you go home? If we'd had time, what are you doing in your parenting? We'll look at that next week. What are you doing when you have your slaves? And I'm going to trust that none of us have slaves, but we'll say more about that next week too. This is the gospel for every day, this is the good news for every day, that actually Jesus is interested in how we live with one another. That the good news of Jesus that is liberating and freedom is actually, is actually also for us grounded in the minutiae of every day. And where we see all these practices of patriarchy and misogyny and that kind of thing, we can also be sure that Jesus is in the business of undermining them. And we should be too. We should be elevating people and building them up. We should be looking for ways that we can do that as we go about it. And so I'll finish with this this week and we'll expand on it more but it's a, Here's what I want us to understand about what this passage in Colossians three is doing. It, Jesus is trying. Paul is trying to write us, write to us, to create a household of peace. This big, wide group, a household of peace, love, and service, which is only found when living under the lordship of Jesus. The context of the husband's love and the wife's love, wife's submission, is entirely within the concept of the Lordship of Jesus. That's the only way any of this makes sense. So as we go out today, I'm going to sing one more song about surrendering ourselves because that's what it is to live this way. It's to surrender to Jesus as the Lord of all and to live well towards others as we choose to take the same posture as Jesus and serve others. Let me pray. And then we'll stand and sing. Father God, we thank you for your word. Thank you that you are kind and loving. That in Jesus you have demonstrated to us. You have demonstrated to us what love and submission look like. Lord God, we want to pattern our lives after that. In our marriages, but also towards one another. Father, we need you to help us to do that. These are easy words to speak and difficult things to put into practice. So help us. In Jesus' name, amen.